0: Um, we are in Acts, and we are going to be in Acts chapter 6 today. Um, So if you have a black Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. Let me quickly uh, get you up to speed a little bit. Um, We started this year talking about healing um, and about what it looks like to offer the healing of the kingdom of God to people, to one another, how to be healed by Jesus. And so we worked that out. Um and also then after that we, we kinda jumped into Acts and we're following the story of of the Holy Spirit as he pours out on the community and begins the church. And so last week Rod talked about um he talked about Ananias and Sapphira, he talked about tithing, talked about what it looks like to to lie to to God and I heard it was really interesting and it didn't get recorded, so I have no idea what he said. Um, he didn't. He gave me a review, but I was tired, and then he went on vacation. So, um, we're going to jump into chapter six, which comes after that story. Um, and let me just get you up to speed. After the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, there's some persecution of the church, that's not too bad. And then what, what the, the apostles realize is that. As their community is growing, it's very difficult for them to keep things organized and to administrate things. So they elect some people. And one of those people happens to be this guy named Stephen. And we're going to look at his story in Acts chapter 6, verse uh, 8, I believe, is where it begins. So if you could turn to Acts chapter 6, and I will find my... uh, my notes here all right let me read let me read this to you acts chapter 6 verse 8 now stephen a man full of god's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people so stephen it says is a man who's filled with the holy spirit and he's doing really great things he seems like he's an exciting guy to be around and i don't know it, maybe you could think about, just a moment, is there somebody in your life or in your past life where you're like, man, the charisma of that person when I'm around them, I barely know what to say or I I stutter over my words. Um, or maybe there's some kind of, maybe a, a mentor in your life that that was transformative. Just the things they said, you hung on every word, right? Well, that's kind of how Stephen is. He's, he's this man who is just talking And he's doing miraculous things, and he seems to be drawing a crowd. Um, But I want you to hold in your mind that person uh, that you really connected to, or somebody that kind of just had an intense uh, charisma as you listen to this uh, story. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and of Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. So... Some false charges are trumped up against Stephen and he's going to have to defend himself. And so in chapter 7, Stephen launches into the longest sermon in the New Testament. It's super, super long and we're not going to read it. okay? But what he does, it's powerful and you should read it, but it is he takes the story of Israel from the very beginning and he begins to tell it to them. He begins to tell these leaders their story and how God was involved with them. And then... Stephen goes just a little crazy in verse 51. So he's finished most of the story, and this is what he says to all the people standing around him. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Okay? He just puts his foot on their neck and pushes down. And he's not stopping. You know, if you ever know when somebody starts digging a hole at the table, because they they say one thing and then oh no, they better stop. Um, I my wife uh, she threw a 50 uh, anniversary celebration for her parents this weekend, which was a big big deal. But Uncle Ronnie got up to talk. And Uncle Ronnie started talking, and I was thinking, oh no, this is not going good. <laughs> and then he, he pulled it in. He landed it, and I was like, because I didn't want to have to tackle him. But this is kind of where Stephen is. Stephen's, anybody who loves Stephen is watching him going, come on, land the plane. And Stephen's like, no, we're not landing. And he, he just nails them. He goes after them. We'll talk about why he does this, but listen to what happens. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I've never been with anybody who gnashes their teeth collectively. So I thought we could all practice so I could hear it. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, that, that, was, that was pathetic. Okay. I, I guess it wasn't that intimidating. Um, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of god at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed at him now sometimes when you read scripture you should just read it for how funny it is and not necessarily to help you think about this scene a bunch of men with their ears covered yelling and running at you I mean, that's just a scary scene in itself. And they seized Stephen and um, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And it gets very not funny anymore. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval of his death. So Stephen seems like a bold guy to me. Stephen seems to be crazy bold, like crazy brave. And I think in the story of Stephen, there's Stephen is going ahead of us, and he's giving us an opportunity to imitate him. And the boldness that Stephen has, I think, is an invitation to you and I um, to be willing to put ourselves in a place that puts ourselves at risk for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of goodness. Now, we've been talking all the way through Acts about the Holy Spirit. And really, it's not the Acts of the Apostles, It's not the acts of Jesus, though Jesus is part of it. It really is the acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts is all about the Spirit of God landing on people, filling them up, and transforming the world. And so we said the Holy Spirit comes in us two ways, or on us. He comes in us when we accept Jesus to work out our relationship with God, to become more like God. The Spirit reminds us of what Jesus says. The Spirit instructs us. The Spirit quickens our conscience. But also, remember I said that the Holy Spirit comes on us. And that on us is like a hug, right? That it's like the God of the universe hugging us. And when he hugs us, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says that we will have the power to testify to what is true. Okay? And so here we have Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, doing crazy things. And it looks really bold. And my argument I want to offer you tonight is that if you want to transform the world, and if you want to see your life transformed, then you're going to have to be bold. That You don't just get this boldness because the Holy Spirit comes on you. I think you practice the discipline of boldness, which brings you closer to walking with Jesus, and then the Spirit will come on you to empower you. And so I kind of want to look at boldness as a characteristic of someone who walks with Jesus, and kind of wrestle with it a little bit, and then look at how it plays itself out in Stephen's life. So, first off, though, I would like to kind of just dispel a few myths about the idea of being bold. So number one, being bold is not a a character trait, right? It's not that extroverts or introverts are more bold, Right? But sometimes we get trapped in these character things. We're Like, oh, I'm introverted. Introverted people are shy. Extroverted people, well, they're bold. That's, that's not true, right? It's just that extroverted people talk more. That's all the differences, right? But what happens is, is that we get caught up in those identifications, and then we let them define us. But I would argue that being bold has nothing to do with what part of how your personality plays out. If you're quieter, or you talk a lot, or you like to be with people, however that works. Um, number two... I think there's this idea that being bold, that we're, the bold people are fearless, right? Somebody who's bold, they do something crazy, they must not have any fear. But the only people who don't have fear are dead people, right? All of us have fear. We're all stuck in Adam's problem, right? Adam and Eve, in the beginning, they sinned, and God goes looking for them, and they're hiding because they're afraid. We're all afraid. Now, fear takes a different role in our lives, depending on who we are, but we're all afraid. Bold people. People were like, wow, Stephen, I guarantee you, Stephen didn't be like, hey, yeah, this is exciting. Today I'm going to get up and I'm going to say a bunch of crazy things and people are going to stone me. And this sounds fun. Like, no, there ha- there's definitely an apprehension and a fear in Stephen. I can guarantee it. So fearlessness is not necessarily attached to boldness. The third myth, I think, a lot of us believe that if we have the right talents or gifts, then we'd be bold, right? If we knew how to do stuff or we were good at stuff, that would aid us in being bold in our life in different areas, right? But but here's here's the thing about about gifts and talents. Stephen, it didn't say Stephen was six foot four, full of muscle, you know, eating a Vegemite sandwich, those kinds of things. No, he was not. It didn't say have anything to do with that. It said he was. Full of the holy spirit right it wasn't about his physical characteristics it does mention that he had some wisdom but apart from that it was about the holy spirit so it's not about specific gifts or talents and last i think a lot of us think well maybe if i were smarter or had more money i'd be more bold right But if you're smart, and I I know a lot of you are, you're engineers, some of you have PhDs, you're like all, you know, you're all smart, and artists, and all that kind of thing. Smart people are probably not as bold. I think people who are D students are bold, because they just don't know, right? They're like, oh, let's jump off the cliff. The smart people are like, no, that's not very smart. The D students are like, oh, really? They're already falling, right? So I, I think that, like, being smart isn't necessarily a prerequisite for boldness, okay? The other thing... Is resources. Like we think, I think if I had more money, I'd take more risks, right? Because I'd be more secure. Like I wouldn't have to worry. No. No, it's not about resources. Again, it didn't say Stephen was a really smart, rich guy. And he decided one day that he would get stoned. No. It, it, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I was, thank you. Thank you. No, I'm just hoping you get that. Um, yes, hoping that he would die um, by stones. So what I'd like to do is draw a picture of what boldness is, and then I would like to show you how Stephen exhibits that, like how it's part of his character, and then how the Holy Spirit uses those things in Stephen's life. So let's imagine, for, so to define boldness, I'm going to just tell you a story, um, and I'll tell you that story a little bit, uh, and it's going to... It has to do with a nine-year-old, okay? And most nine-year-old boys have a thing about computers. What I've learned is that most 35-year-old boys have a thing about computers, too. You need your Xboxes and all those kinds of things. But nine-year-olds have these regulatory forces called parents, okay? And these regulatory forces have rules. So nine-year-old boys, when they want computer, they have a few things they do. First, when they want computer time, that's what they want. They have a clarity of vision. They don't wake up and think, well, maybe I could play Wii. Maybe I could go outside and play basketball. Maybe I could... No, they think, I want to play computer. This is what I want to do. Okay? They know what they want. And then they're focused. Life is all about the computer. So they go in to the parents and they say can I play computer? And the parent says, no. And they go, okay. They come back half hour later, and the parent says, no. And so they begin um, to continue to do this all through the day. And here's the thing, they're stubborn about this, because they want to get what they want, right? Now, stubbornness is a quality of boldness when you're right, right? Being stubborn is important when you're right, unless you're a husband, and then don't worry about it, just drop it, okay? Um, But, sorry, you can go the other way too. But stubbornness is good when you're right. And that little boy believes he's right, okay? So he begins to resource. So he begins to think, okay, well, I'll go back in and I'll say something like this. If I clean the bathroom, can I have half an hour of computer time? I could think about that. Comes back a little later. If I clean the bathroom and I've unloaded the dishwasher four times over the last week, and if I unload it one more time, the chart you gave me says I can have a half hour, right? They're resourced, right? So here's the definition of boldness someone who's bold has a clarity of vision, they're focused on it, they're stubborn about it, and they're willing to resource it. They're willing to find any kind of resource to make it happen. Right? So if you forget anything I say, just think of the little nine-year-old on summer break who has a computer and strict regulatory forces over him. Okay? And he is trying to figure out how to get computer time. He's going to approach it with boldness. He's going to clarity, focus, stubbornness, and he's going to be resourceful. All right? So how does, how does this all apply to Stephen? Okay? Well, Stephen gets accused of something uh, in chapter 6 that is really important. So in chapter 6, verse, the second half of verse 13, this is what they say about Stephen. This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now Luke says that this is a false witness, right? That these are people who aren't telling the truth. But if you know anything about people who accuse you of something, they never accuse you of something that's completely not true. They always twist it a little bit. Because that's what's going to make it stick. When the accusation against you has truth in it, but then it's twisted around. Okay? And so here's what he was doing. He had a savior named Jesus, and in the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus showed up and said something. He said, I will destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it up again. Now, Jesus was doing something really crazy because he also said about himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or to the Father except by me. Now, when Jesus says that the temple, that he's the temple, what he's telling everybody is is your focus of worship, the things that you do right now, I am now the focus. I am now the temple. All the things, the Old Testament, everything that was pointing towards the temple and worship and how to do it no longer matters. I'm the temple. I'm going to destroy the temple and build it up. Right? I'm going to raise up on the third day. John puts in parentheses, he's talking about himself, he's talking about the resurrection. But then he also, when he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, Well, that's what the Hebrew person called the Old Testament, the Torah. It's the way, the truth, and the life. It was the thing that pointed people to God, explained how to sacrifice, explained how to be in God's presence, all those kinds of things. So what Jesus basically said was, since I'm destroying the temple, me, it's not just Jesus who's being destroyed and then rebuilt, but the temple itself no longer matters anymore. So here's Stephen, he's seen Jesus raised from the dead, he's seen Jesus ascend into heaven, and I guarantee you, he gets up in the morning, he goes to the temple, and his message is this, guys, this process here, the foundation, Moses' law, it, it doesn't, you don't have to go here to worship God anymore. The temple, this is, you don't have to make these sacrifices, Jesus made a sacrifice for you. Now you can go and worship him anywhere. Now, there's a key in this passage earlier. It says, right before Stephen's little story, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, in Jerusalem and in surrounding Jerusalem, there were about 8,000 priests that built sort of the structure of, Of faith. And they were defecting. So the walls of the temple, the religion, the faith, was all falling apart. And here's Stephen saying, it's coming down, guys. These walls don't matter anymore. Your way of worshiping Jesus, our God, has changed. Okay? This is why everybody got so mad at him. This is why they all were freaking out. It was not because... He was just, I mean, he wasn't really saying anything. There wasn't really any reason, in in my mind, just reading it, for him to be stoned. Unless he was saying something super drastic. And what he was saying is, the faith is over. See, Stephen had clarity of vision. He was focused. And then he gets really stubborn because they drag him out in front of the Sanhedrin and he has an opportunity to say, hey guys, you know... I was just talking. It's not really a big deal. Instead, he decides to tell them a really long story. He uses he, their, their story, he resources it. And then he begins to just pound on them until it means his death. Stephen's boldness came from a clarity, it came from a focus, it came because he was stubborn. About the message of Jesus being talked about, and also it had to, it just had to be so hard for him to stand there in the temple and watch the sacrifices and say, None of this matters anymore. Right? Now, what he's accused of is that he was saying that Moses' his law was basically, he was misusing Moses' law, that he was speaking against God and being blasphemous. None of that was probably what he was saying. All he was saying was, Moses' law and the temple were a good thing, but they were a shadow and a thing that points to what was to come. But Jesus has come, the true temple, and the completion of the law, and now this has to change. The foundation's been removed. And so they kill him for it. Now, right now in our country, that's not a situation we have to face. We're not in a place where we are being stoned, opposing a state religion. Now some of you may think that things are getting worse and maybe someday that that will happen, but right now that's not happening to us. So we're not put in Stephen's place where we need a boldness where our life is put at risk. But recently I was talking to my wife and we were talking about this thing that we do here at the church called pilgrim groups. And in pilgrim group we have a thing called the hot seat. Okay, now don't freak out if you're new and don't understand this, but the hot seat is simply if you have some issues in your life you want to deal with, then the community comes around you and has a process of asking you some questions, talking to you about things that you believe, and allowing the gospel to speak into your life and pray for you. Now, Sue was saying that a lot of times there's a point in the hot seat where you you ask somebody, so what would it look like if you did this, or you said this to this person. And, and the person in response says, well, that would feel like death. Right? That there are th- and so you know, as well as, as I do, that there are things in your life that if you had to do them, they would feel like dying. Like that you'd feel like death. Right? And I think that that is the place Where we can follow Stephen's lead because there are things in our life that God is calling us into boldness, and it feels like death. It feels like that's the worst thing to do. Now, one of the ways to kind of figure this out and follow Stephen in this is to sort of categorize categorize your life a little bit, which is helpful for me. So, what I do is I often say, okay, so what's going on in my marriage? What's going on in my family? What's going on with my kids? What's going on in my neighborhood? what's going on at work, what's happening in the recreational things I do? What's, and I, I break my life down into all the different kind of sections where relationship is involved, okay? where I have to interact with people because the gospel and faith and life is all about interaction with people and so we have to break our lives down that way. God is asking all of us to be bold in some area of our life. In, Maybe it's in our marriage. Maybe it's in the ways we're parenting. Maybe it's some people who are really close to knowing Jesus and God wants you to step in there and be bold. Okay. He's asking you to have kind of a clarity of vision. He's asking you to be focused. He's asking you to be stubborn about it. And he wants you to use resources. Now, maybe you're saying, Okay, Eric, that sounds interesting. I'm not quite sure how to do that. Let me help you out. I'm going to give you some questions okay, to help you get started, all right? So here's, we're going to talk about a mind question, and we're going to talk about a heart question, and you can sort of use these to kind of determine maybe where God is calling you to step out in boldness, okay? And this will kind of help clarify things for you. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. What do I believe, and I'll repeat this a couple times, is impossible to do in my marriage, in my parenting, at work, But if it could be done, it would fundamentally change my marriage, my children's lives, my co-work, the life of where I work, right? So what do I believe is impossible to do in, and you pick the section, but if it could be done, it would fundamentally change. So as you think about the intimate relationships that you have with people, ask it about that. My marriage. Impossible. But if it did, this is what would happen. At work. But you don't just want to ask it in relationships. You want to ask it about yourself, too. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. What can I, what, you've got to ask it about your own health, your own life, in that way. Okay. So, log that in your brain. I'll, I'll read it one more time. What do I believe is impossible to do? But if it could be done it would fundamentally change my, and you fill in the blank. All right. So that's the kind of thing to think through. That will give you clarity. That will begin to focus. That will begin to help you see where you need to change. Now, here's the heart question, and I'll use heart in it. What breaks your heart? I think that's what motivated Stephen. I think Stephen thought, as he went and saw his brothers and sisters in an, in an empty faith, and he knew Jesus, his heart was breaking. And so he was willing to put his life at risk so that things could change. Okay? So the question I would ask you is, what breaks your heart? Now this could be in the big picture. like What breaks your heart in this world, in this city? But it could also be, what breaks your heart in your marriage? What breaks your heart when you, as you watch your kids? What breaks your heart in your friends' lives as they struggle? What, what is it that really just comes back, like you just can't stop coming back to that thing in those areas of your life? If you have a hard time thinking about it that way, then think it about what do you want people to thank you for at the end of your life? What do you want people to thank you for at the end of your life? What do you want people to come by and say, I am so glad that you did this. I am so glad. Okay? Because if you can answer those questions, I think you can begin to walk in Stephen's steps. You can begin to bring yourself closer to God and have the Holy Spirit empower you so that your clarity becomes very clear and your focus becomes very razor sharp and your stubbornness is like a mule and you're going to resource things. Now... When it comes to this question of who am I going to like thanking somebody um, for what they've done, I want to go back to Stephen because when I get in, when I pass away, and I get an opportunity to go face to face with Stephen, I'm going to thank him for this. I'm going to thank him for being willing to put his life on the line to stand up against a structure that was empty. And speak, and even as he knew he was going to die, push harder. Because, you know what, for those of us who are not Jewish, and even for those of us who are, we're here because of Stephen. Stephen launched this faith. And Stephen and Hannah, who are right here, are going to preach next week. And they're going to cover like four or five chapters of Acts, but they're going to talk about how the gospel just exploded and how men took it to the ends of the earth, and um, but Stephen's death is the thing that kicked it in. Stephen's willingness to be bold in the face of danger transformed everything. My, my challenge to you guys is to just—you have an opportunity to be bold in a lot of different areas of your life. You have an opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit and transform and see things be transformed, but. Here's the problem. You and I are really busy and don't have a lot of time to be bold. Um, We are in a world where things are moving fast. And it's difficult because I think a lot of times in our culture, we have bought into something and that is that somehow... We deserve a, deserve a relief from life. We deserve to have a break. And if God is calling us to a boldness, to a sacrifice of our life, to relationally and emotionally and spiritually be willing to step into the places that feel like death, then we may have to reject that image or that need for for relief that our culture keeps telling us we need, I would like to read to you out of First Peter. The Apostle Peter writes in First Peter chapter five, um, in verse eight, he says this to young people: Be self-controlled and alert. Some places it says sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. The enemy of boldness, the enemy of clarity and focus, is the, is the devil. Now, it's not just the devil, it's also your broken state. And it's also the value system of the world. But they all go around like a big lion. Now for Peter writing to people who are suffering, who are thrown to the lions, that makes a lot of sense, right? They get it. The enemy's coming like a lion. You and I don't think there's an enemy really, right? Most of us don't live that way. We do not think that inside us, the thing that keeps telling us, hey, you, know, you need this, you need that, you need to do this, or the world that keeps... Pouring in like a value system that's so foreign, what makes you valuable, and it's so convoluted and so confusing, we don't see it as a lion looking to devour us. And then the enemy who constantly is lying about who you are, like that that thing you hear in your ear all the time you're this, you're never going to measure up, you'll never get that, you'll never be bold, you can't even think straight, how could you possibly be clear, there's none of that. That's the enemy, and yet we don't view the enemy as a lion. Now, Peter says that we should resist him and stand firm because everybody's suffering, right? We're all suffering. All over the world there's a suffering going on. And that is that there is this oppression, an attack on us, okay? So that we won't be bold, so we won't push the gospel forward, so we won't do anything. I would like to offer... You guys, uh, uh, just a, not a challenge, but a, but a suggestion. And that is, and I keep saying this, I've been saying this for a while, but I would like you to simplify your life a little bit. I would like you to stop and really take seriously the question of what needs to fundamentally, what do I think is impossible to change and what would it look like if it did change? Because that's the way the Christian life is. Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that if we're in Christ, we're no longer a new, uh, The old is gone, the new has come, right? That's what it says. It says we're no longer... Ah, I've lost the verse, but anyway. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Um, you could go look it up. But the idea is simply this. That you and I are no longer dead, but we're alive. And it says that the old man is going and the new man is coming. right? That's how it can be translated. But what that looks like is like an hourglass that's turned sideways. That you and I live a life of constant kind of confusion and distraction and lack of focus, lack of clarity, lack of purpose. And then when the Holy Spirit comes in us, he pushes us through the middle part of the hourglass. And it's painful and it feels like death. But when it opens up, into the new paradigm, when things are clear, then it's not as hard to step into the temple area and look around and say, hey, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You have clarity. So, what time is it? 6.09. So, let me just go back over those two questions that you, for you to remember, and then we will close. So this is what I want you to think about. What do I believe is impossible to do, but if it could be done, it would fundamentally change my... And second, what breaks your heart? Those are the two things that I want you to think about this week as you wrestle with boldness and with what God's calling you to. Let's pray. Father, thank you... um, So much for this community, thank you for their willingness to uh, wrestle with your word, to um, wrestle with me, to uh, try to walk in your ways. And Jesus, we ask as we spend time singing and as we spend time eating together and as we talk, that you would give us intention. An intention to uh, speak truth to one another, to listen and to ask good questions. And ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. There is a couple ways um, to respond to God's Word. One is through offering. If you're visiting with us, we're just happy to have you. You don't need to give anything. This is how we support our pastors and keep the lights on and do all those good things. Um, The other way to respond is that there's a white chair back there, and it's called the healing chair. Um, For a long time, our church, it was painted black, and it was called the sinner's chair. Um, And it was an opportunity for you to go back there and, and confess your sin and have people pray for you. But as we started the series on healing, we really felt like God was saying, no, I want that chair to be a place where you can ask for healing. You can still confess your sin, but it's white now. During the music, you can go back there and sit in that chair. And people will see you eventually. You may have to sit there for a little bit. And they'll come up to you and just offer a short, kind of, this is what's going on in my life, and they'll pray for you, and hopefully they'll follow up afterwards. Okay, so if you pray for somebody, make sure you follow up with them. Um, so that's one way to respond. The other the last way to respond is through communion. On the night that Christ was um, going to be betrayed, he was eating Passover, and he took the bread, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And at the end of the meal took a glass of wine, and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the new covenant. It's the new promise. So if you can come up here and take the bread and dip it in the wine or juice and say that you stand with Christ's broken body and his blood shed for you, then please come up and do that. If you can't, we'd rather you not. Um, We're going to sing some songs. There's going to be just a little bit of time of meditation, and then we'll eat together.